0: Hello and welcome to the Agri Food Safety Produce Bites podcast, where we discuss all things produce safety and dive into the rules and regulations surrounding the Food Safety Modernization Act produce safety rule.
1: I'm Phil Toko. I'm with Michigan State University Extension. I'm based in Jackson County, but I cover the entire state with respect to on farm produce safety.
0: Thanks for having me today. It's great to be here. My name is Annalisa Hultberg, and I'm a statewide extension educator in food safety at the University of Minnesota.
1: So, Annalisa, I'm just curious, you know, you've been doing food safety for a long time. And so you probably were around when the current rule uh, was put into place. I'm, I'm curious what issues your growers had with the current rule as it is that would make FDA want to go back to the drawing board in the first place
0: yeah I mean, you know we've all been doing the the trainings and really um you know providing a lot of education about the current role and it it required a pretty deep understanding of of math and an understanding of data and being able to read and understand water tests and and to quantify
1: them. you know
0: it was a it was kind of a lot uh for our growers to understand. How about you, Phil?
1: Well, so I know some of our growers, the issues were that they were drawing from maybe multiple water sources, like like maybe the same stream, but drawing at three different points in the stream, things like that. And and the way the current rule worked is you'd have to treat each of those sources or each of those, those draw points as like a separate source. So I can see where some people would have some problems with that.
0: Yes. Yep. For sure. I would agree. I think... Um... You know, and it also didn't specify that kind of a deeper look and and understanding, uh, taking a step back and thinking about the factors on farm that might affect the the quality of your water. That wasn't explicit in the rule as written. So, you know, from FDA's perspective, from, from what we have based on what they said and what they've written they they wanted to move away from just relying on that water test as a way to understand the quality of your water solely based on the, that quantified test and those criteria and move more towards an, a deeper understanding and thinking about all of the factors that might affect the quality of that water and then doing something about it.
1: I'm wondering, so is the test dead or... Is water testing still allowed in some parts of the rule?
0: Uh, it's certainly my understanding that it's allowed. I, I think it's not required. But as a verification practice to understand if the measures that you've taken to fix whatever hazard might be present, I certainly would hope that testing would still be a part of of that because it really is a great way to understand the quality of your water. In Minnesota, we have, we use a lot of groundwater. We're lucky to have good, deep, pretty protected, relatively clean aquifers. Um, and understanding their quality, you know, an annual test in terms of gaps, we say, you know, an annual test, if nothing changes, you're good to go. But I, I certainly will continue to say, regardless of any <laughs> regulation, that that is a great idea to continue to understand if their wellhead has cracked or some sort of infiltration is getting into that groundwater. I, I still think testing is, is still an important part of that. It's just not required in terms of the rigid frequency, um, but it's still a, a verification practice. Would you agree with that?
1: I, I think so. I think the reports of, of uh, water testing's demise have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> so
0: Yes, it's, it's just a lot more, there's a lot more flexibility and it seems to be a lot less rigid um, and prescriptive.
1: So that leads us in. I'm, what? So So it's not prescriptive. What other differences do you see?
0: Well, maybe first we could say the things that haven't changed. So I think it's important to say that this proposal is all about pre-harvest water. We're not talking, there are no proposed changes to the post-harvest water quality um, criteria. So that post-harvest water still has to be no detectable generic E. coli in a 100 ml sample for post-harvest and harvest use. So we are, we're only talking about that pre-harvest. I think that's pretty important. That's one of the first things as I've been talking about this with growers that people are like, hold on, are we talking about po- post-harvest? Because that that water still needs to be
1: drinkable. Right, absolutely. And and just, just for the record, we're talking about water that either touches the harvestable portion of the crop or we're talking about water that touch like post harvest touches the crop or touches a, a direct food contact surface or hands yes.
0: yep it still has to meet that definition of agricultural water so it it seems that the biggest change here is that the proposal really replaces that pre harvest for the pre harvest water that microbial water quality profile and that sampling regime with a systems-based assessment of the quality of your water. So we're stepping away from just a quantitative test result to looking at your entire water system, which might be quite a bit more broad and vague and require quite a bit more thinking perhaps on the grower's perspective.
1: So with the MWQP or the Microbial Water Quality Profile, it sounds like FDA set a standard and everybody had to meet the standard. So sort of the burden of proof for whether or not your water was, was clean enough was on the FDA. And now with this ag water assessment and this qualitative assessment of water, instead of that burden of proof being on the FDA, all of a sudden now a grower needs to... To accept the responsibility for whether or not their water is safe—is that a fair characterization?
0: Yes, I, I. Although I think in the in the current role, it's it, it's still the grower's prerogative to ensure that their water is safe totally. for intended use.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't mean that part so much as the grower wouldn't have had to prove that by meeting the microbial water pro- quality profile that it was safe. If they met the MWQP, um, that the FDA basically established that as being sort of safe. Whereas yep. now a grower has got to take a lot more responsibility.
0: Yeah. And that involves a lot more thinking, uh, less math, but a lot more thinking about the factors that go into making your water system safe or not.
1: So then this, this ag water assessment, I mean, what are some of the key components of the ag water assessment?
0: Yeah, so it seems like this ag water assessment is kind of the key, you know, part of this proposed water rule. So a farmer would conduct this law if the water meets the definition of agricultural water. Um, that that is first and foremost. Um, it needs to be conducted annually or when something changes substantially. And it has to be written. So, I mean, the way I'm reading it is, it is just a thorough assessment of the factors that might cause your water to be contaminated. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of this ag water assessment, you have a determination about the quality of your water and what you might need to do.
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: So the FDA has laid out in, in their... Written document so far has laid out kind of five categories of factors that the farm has to assess as a part of this ag water assessment.
1: Yep. Do you want to walk through those? I can totally do that. Um, so, the, the first one is really talking about the water system in general. So, where it is and, and whether or not it's a groundwater source or a surface water source, and then the type of the distribution system you've got in place and, and how protected that water system is. It's a lot like parts of the annual water system inspection in the rule as it's currently written, but it doesn't stop there, it keeps going. So then we've got ag water practices, which is really how the water's applied. What other things were included in that ag water assessment? So you mentioned
0: what the ag water system is about the location and then the type of distribution system and then how you get it to the crop. So the application method, also the crop characteristics. So how likely is it that if there was pathogens in that water, how likely is it that it might adhere to the surface or would it be internalized or sucked in to the actual cellular structure of that crop? So that surfeit as adhesion is going to be greater in things like a uh, bumpy rains cantaloupe as opposed to an eggplant, you know, just think about those bumps. So like the type of the crop uh, and then environmental conditions. So thinking through what the conditions are during the growing of, the, of that specific crop. So are you getting a lot of heavy rain events? Um, how is your humidity? That can affect how those pathogens are adhering, or if those pathogens are desiccating the field and um, going away, air temperatures, and then sun and kind of UV exposure. We know that pathogens can can dry up in the field, and um, you know that that has been shown to happen.
1: This this doesn't strike me as a as something you can do in five minutes either. I mean, it sounds like I know the FDA gave some some estimates that. Um, basically a small farm this is gonna take an hour to do and like a large farm it might take as many as nine hours to complete.
0: Yeah, that's what I read from the FDA as well. And I mean if you think about it, depending on the size of the farm, I believe it could take more time. I mean it you're really being asked to think quite carefully and potentially gather data from quite a few sources. This I mean because if you think through these kind of four things that we just mentioned, it this might be information that you have on hand. You know the rind of your melon. But also if we're you know if if this proposal is saying that you need to look upstream and think about um all of the upstream uses and think about what weather patterns, this might be information that you gather um, from a number of sources, and that definitely might take some time. They also spell out that you will need to reassess if there are significant changes, so they don't exactly spell out what th- that it means what a significant change would be, but you would it this is definitely not thought to be a static thing that you do once a year check off and then yeah. don't do it again for another year
1: so it sounds like to me not only are there is there a time commitment but then you've got to do something with the information so you basically it's basically in three buckets if you will good to go or you found some things that need to be fixed or it's unsafe for use would that be a fair characterization
0: yeah i think that is how they spelled it out there either it is there's no risk presence and you're you're okay to go it I, it would be interesting to me how you would that, so to speak. Sure. So, that might be a comment people could say is do I just say I never saw a risk to my water system for the entire year? Yeah. Um, you still would need to go down all of those categories that we mentioned previously and kind of describe how, how your risks could be very low. Yeah. Um, or the risks are present, um, but you're kind of not sure if they're going to impact the immediate quality of the water and therefore it's kind of a longer term fix or there's immediate presence, a risk presence and you have to stop that use immediately and make changes.
1: So I'm interested in that middle category. It sounded like basically whenever there whenever you think that poop is in your water, you've got a, a certain timeline to do the fixes. And then if there's a situation where there's not where where you don't think poop is in your water, You may have a longer timeline to do the fixes.
0: Yeah, that's that is how I also read that. I mean, which which makes sense. I would like to see some examples of what exactly they mean by an immediate um, foreseeable hazard. But I feel like if you saw literal poop in the water that you were pumping from to irrigate with, that would be a reason for you to discontinue use.
1: Yeah. It, absolutely so then what um curious from your read what you came up with with respect to ways of once you've got the determination if there's risks present and and they're not sure if they're impacting the quality of the water what sort of mitigations would you do
0: yeah so they they kind of break it down into two categories of you have mitigation measures or you have corrective measures and mitigation measures are those longer term things that you're going to change um, and it might be a longer term fix, but that corrective measure is something that needs to be changed within the same season because the hazard that you're fixing, it poses more of an immediate threat. So um, some of the suggestions are making modifications. Um, This might be repairs. This might be building fences on your property or adjacent property. It's important to note it that this rule really does mention in a few places that these hazards might be present on adjacent property. It might not just be your land. And that is really important to note as we make comments that it might be difficult for you to assess the what those hazards are on your neighbor's property, but also important because they might pose a threat to that water. So it is actually important
1: to note those. Not only is it important, to try and figure out your neighbor's property but I mean I would I could see a grower having an issue trying to talk to a neighbor about fixing some of this stuff too so
0: yes that <laughs> neighborly relations can be challenging and so this might might add to that mix
1: yeah so certainly so one of the things that they're also proposing is this die-off of, of at least four days um, in the current rule One of the the corrective measures is to um, apply up to a four day die off and and that will reduce the microbial counts. It's essentially two log. So it basically moves that decimal point number of of bacteria count by two decimal places over. And they're proposing at least four days between the, the last irrigation event and the time to harvest it makes sense. And it's, it's a, I'm grateful that they're allowing that as a fix. Um, it's, it's hard to figure out how you would assess die off if you don't know what you start with. And I think that's something I struggle with. Um, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure in the final rule, FDA is going to, uh, give us some guidance on how to deal with that and do that.
0: Yeah, I think it's worth noting that it is not a, a cure all for potentially dangerous levels of bacteria on our on our water. You know, so it is a, it is a an option that they've laid out here. Does the science really support that? That is a, a get out of jail free card, for example. You know, I, I don't know that that science does support that.
1: The good news is, it sounds like. One of the mitigations they also talk about is switching to drip irrigation, which not only does that does that reduce the risk, but it exempts you from doing any other ag water assessments again. So it's kind of cool. It's like, you know, if I switch from overhead irrigation to drip, I then really get out of jail free, as it were.
0: <laughs> but you know, switching to drip, I would say just from a gaps perspective, stepping away from regulation. I would say that's a much better option it, because it truly does reduce your risk because the water isn't touching the edible portion, assuming that the system is set up um, so that there isn't holes in your drip tape and it is suddenly an overhead sprinkler.
1: <laughs> and, and just to reinforce, I think that's the biggest thing about this rule is it really makes the grower really focus on risk reduction and the risks. What are my risks? And then, how do I reduce those risks? And and so, you're absolutely right that all of the gap stuff that folks have learned about water, it's they're going to need it. They're going to need every every ounce of that and plus. So
0: yeah, yep. And I will say, just for plant health, in addition, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits. I know that that setting up drip can be expensive and a difficult system-wise, a lot of infrastructure to deal with. But we know that from a disease reduction. Standpoint, you know, it can also have a lot of other benefits as well. So then they also mention um, treating the water in accordance with the proto safety rule, the current proto safety rule.
1: It's kind of expensive, isn't it? I mean,
0: <laughs> not something that that growers necessarily would do in Minnesota. I don't know how about you, Phil?
1: Some some growers I think in Michigan would would treat their water, and some some already do, but. But certainly, um, broad scale treatment of water is really tough, and and you know some, some experts have said that just because you use just because you're treating water to bring down something like E. coli numbers doesn't mean that you're going to kill all the baddies, and there's some baddies that really aren't controlled by things like chlorine, so you've got to worry about that too.
0: Exactly. So, yeah, they, they do lay out some options. Um, and I think that it would, I personally would like to see some more options laid out. And hopefully, folks aren't using something like the die off and just um, perhaps thinking, well, I, I don't need to do any sort of an ag water assessment because I'm just going to do a, a very brief ag water assessment and then use die off and not really think about the quality of my water because that would be not really in the spirit of the rule, or in risk reduction.
1: So, Annalisa, when does a person not have to do an ag water assessment?
0: So, it's my understanding that if the water source meets post-harvest ag water requirements, you don't have to do that ag water assessment. So, basically, if that's untreated groundwater that has no detectable generic E. coli in that 100 mil sample, it meets that post-harvest requirements and you don't need to conduct that ag water assessment. Or if it's rural water, municipal water, if it's from a public water system that has been tested and treated, then you also don't need to do that ag water assessment. The, The one last thing to note, though, is that you still have to do that inspection of your water distribution system's Um, As the current rule lays out. So that's kind of an inspection of your distribution lines, your well, um, that stands. So this would be in addition to that and a much more holistic look at your water systems on your property and in your adjacent properties kind of beyond that inspection of your physical uh, infrastructure. Is that your understanding, Phil?
1: I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So in light of all of this, what what should a grower do at this point for this season coming up?
0: Well, so we know that this is a proposed rule and the comment period doesn't close until April 5th of 2022. So the rule as written right now stands um, and enforcement discretion, as my understanding, still stands as well.
1: Yeah, so, so basically, nobody should go out and make changes based on this stuff. And and the other thing I think is important to reinforce is the fact that you know neither neither you or I are are lawyers, so this should not constitute legal advice. Is I guess what I was going to say.
0: Right, and also I think it's really important to remember that this is a proposal. Nothing in this rule is final, so we should not right. be making any changes based on something that's not. Final. Um, I think what we should do right now is read enough of the rule to understand it, understand what an ag water assessment is and what you would do with it. You know, I think one maybe good way to think about it is picture your farm and picture yourself doing an ag water assessment about all of your water system. Look at the FDA fact sheet. They have a a pretty decent fact sheet that it's only three pages and it really kind of, it has a couple of tables that really lay out what the ag water assessment is, picture doing it on your farm, picture writing it, picture when you would have to redo it, when, when you would have to do a reassessment. And then picture making all those records because this is an additional record and then make comments to the FDA about what is clear to you in that process and what is not clear.
1: Yeah, it makes, definitely makes good sense. They'll be able to say whether or not it's doable or not. And if it isn't doable, then, you know, that need the FDA needs to hear about it for sure.
0: I really think the FDA needs to hear about this. Phil and I were both around as the pro-to-safety rule and its current form was initially, you know, proposed and the rulemaking, that initial rulemaking process was in place. And we were really asking for folks to go and read it and make comments. And I know that that is a time commitment. That's a really big time commitment. So we don't say it lightly, but this is kind of the one and only chance we get this very formal sort of docket process that the FDA has that looks kind of overwhelming and formal um, It is really their one and only process to gather those those thoughts. So if you read it and then you have a statement just as simple as I don't understand what a significant change would be that would make me have to redo my ag water assessment. You know, if it's as simple as that, that might be a great statement. I guarantee other folks are probably thinking it if you are. Any other thoughts that you have on how to make good comments, Phil? I know you wrote a nice uh, blog piece about this.
1: Sure. Uh, be constructive. Don't, don't tear the institution down. If you've got a specific question about a part of the rule, there's usually these things called provision numbers that, that accompany every one of the statements. So definitely give them a uh, provision number and relate whatever the, the provision is back to your farm activities. And then explain to them why what they're proposing isn't doable, given what you are, what you currently have going on your farm. And then follow it up potentially with some way that they could fix it where it would become doable.
0: I think that's really, really good advice, Phil, because the FDA is only able to make rules based on the information that they know. And they aren't farmers. Um, So they really rely on you to give specifics to your operation and say, in my operation, this would take this much time and therefore cost this much um, and would be difficult. Or, you know, this part really makes sense to me and I, I laud you for doing X, Y, Z. Totally fine to do, too. But don't think that you need to be a water quality expert or a microbiologist at all. The main thing that they want to know is how would it affect you and your bottom line? I, and I, I, let's take them at their word. I, they keep on saying they want people to make comments. So let's do that.
1: Let's give it to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing to, to realize is that this podcast should not be your only source of information you know, reach out to to your local extension educator that does produce safety. If you have service providers that do um, produce safety, reach out to them to ask questions. But yeah, definitely don't make this the only mechanism that you're learning about this. Thanks for talking to me about this, Annalisa.
0: Yeah, thank you, Phil. I think this is really good and hopefully it, it helps people just kind of wrap their head around it. I know it's a lot to, to, to take in. So thanks for your help with getting this information out. Links to anything referenced in this episode are provided in our show notes, which can be accessed on the website at canr.msu.edu slash safety. Thank you to everyone for listening. And don't forget to tune in next month for another episode of our Produce Bites podcast.